Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts. It is wonderful to have a special podcast with a terrific friend and scholar in the community in anticipation of Purim, which is just days away. And we are going to thus turn our focus directly to the story of Esther. Now, to have Dr. Erica Brown in this setting is a gift, and she could talk about just about anything, and we would be spellbound. But to have her in dialogue on her commentary on the book of Esther is a special treat. Um, Dr. Erica Brown is the vice provost for values and leadership at Yeshiva University and the founding director of its rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She was both a faculty member and a student of Rabbi Sachs's at Jews College, where my grandfather actually went to rabbinical school, where Rabbi Sachs served as her master's thesis advisor. Erica previously served as the director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership and an associate director of curriculum and pedagogy at the George Washington University. Erica is the author of 12 books, that sounds biblical, on leadership, the Hebrew Bible, and spirituality. Erica has a daily podcast, Take Your Soul to Work. Her latest book, Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. She's published in the Times, the Atlantic, Tablet, everywhere. She has master's degrees from the Institute of Education in London, Jews College in London and Harvard University, and a PhD from Baltimore Hebrew University. If you ever hear that Dr. Brown is speaking, don't walk, run, and go listen to one of the great, great scholars and teachers of our time, Dr. Erica Brown. Um, Dr. Brown, welcome. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Elliot. Now I know why you do funerals. Um, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's always lovely to to see you, to speak with you, and uh, and to speak with my friends at Park Avenue. Well, you are a friend of the community. You've spoken in the community, um, and you are a teacher of mine and so many, and and a dear friend, um, uh, Dr. Brown, Erica. I have to tell you, I'm holding in my hand your commentary, Esther. Um, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile from Magid Press. But it's not the title of the book that I'm focusing on. It's it's publication by way of the inscription, um, Dearest Cosgrove Family, with warm blessings for a Purim of joy and meaning, and with gratitude for all the blessings you bring to our people, Bididut. And this is the inscription you gave, and it's a gorgeous inscription. You've inscribed several books, but the reason I want to bring this up is this conversation is long to do because you gave me this book and inscribed it in March of 2020. And yep. I bumped into you on the Upper West Side. You must have been in town for a meeting or otherwise. And who knew 
that the world would literally be turned over just days after. I think we were all very nervous at that moment. And I said, I said, Erica, because I call you Erica when we're not on a podcast. And I said, we got to bring you into Park Avenue Synagogue. You said, okay, I'm already booked. I just have this new book that came out on Purim, maybe next Purim. And then here we are a few years later. So I remember it was a really, it was a really crazy time to put out a book. I remember I was speaking in a community center and uh, we had a nice registration and then and then it just kept dropping with every day. It kept dropping. I think we had no idea, of course, at the time that our worlds would become so very narrow. And in a way, when you write on Esther and you think about the harem experience, right, of being taken into a capital, a walled capital city, mm-hmm. and then taken into a castle, you know, take it, your, your whole life sort of collapses. And, um, and so may, maybe in some way, uh, thinking about it psychically prepared me for uh, for the sort of seclusion we'd experience, which is, I have to say, as 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 awful as COVID was, and it was awful in every possible way um, for academics. It was actually a time of a lot of reflection and reading and writing. Um, so I wasn't able to really speak about the book, and that's th- this book. As um, you know, working on other things, but. But it was uh, it was a really strange time to have a book come out, and it was yeah. uh, I, I I so appreciate your having this conversation because I really haven't had a lot of public conversations about the book. Well, it, it's overdue, and and maybe at the end of the podcast on Esther, we'll we'll hear about what some of your work was uh, during COVID that might be seeing the light of day soon enough. But let let me there there's so many ways to read the story of Esther. And I, I guess I just want to, I mean, we could list them. It, it's the one Megillah with one biblical book where God's name's not mentioned. Of course, we could take the anti-Semitism angle. We can talk about it as a diaspora book, which is kind of baked into the, the subtitle of, of your commentary about exile. Um, we could talk about women's leadership and Vashti and Esther. Um, but I, I, I want to begin exactly where you were. Um, because of its publication time with Purim itself and chance and the idea that the world can be overturned and, and turn on a dime. And I'm wondering just, um, is, where, where does the book of Esther fit in into biblical theology as a whole? Because, you know, it doesn't seem, it seems to be saying that a lot just comes down to chance, mm-hmm. um, which is, is a little, counter what what other texts of the tradition teach us yeah i i think i think if that were the case if that were the overriding sentiment theological sentiment in the book i think it probably wouldn't have been canonized i think there's a there i think the book realistically presents the mindset that many of us live in not only in exile but i think with an existential grasp of what it means to be a human being is the inherent fragility, and that's why I put fragility in the title. We tend to focus on the power dynamic, the power dynamic between Mordechai and Haman, between Akashverosh and uh, and 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 Esther. Uh, but I think what underscores everything is is the fragility of the book, and also the sense that uh, you can walk in a courtyard in the middle of the night. The king happens to be an insomniac. He happens to read the annals of his people. He realizes he hasn't rewarded someone 
who saved his life. And then all of history turns, turns, uh, an about face for the Jewish people. I, I think that's the world we live in. I think COVID actually was, that was probably the singular best example for us uh, collectively of what that happens. We all know you and the rabbinate and, and, and me and my own work. Um, we meet someone who's healthy one day and suddenly gets a diagnosis and then everything changes. Everything changes for that individual, for that individual's family. And I think COVID was an example much I mean, different than Esther, but, uh, but, you know, because it was prompted by, uh, you know, by, by a virus that, that traveled globally, we live in a global world and our collective sense of, of fragility and vulnerability and how you actually hold on to uncertainty, hold on to uncertainty and make a meaningful life of it, create anchor experiences and stability. Um, one of the images um, that, that I hold on to really daily, I would say, the, the image of the, of the sea opening, right? The idea of the dry earth and the water that, that we're always sort of in that sliver of dry earth trying to get to the other side and the water is, is about to collapse. I think that, that, that sort of tenuous image, uh, sort of to pull out Wallace Stegner, the, um, you know, crossing to safety. So we're always sort of walking that. And I think Esther walks that. I think Mordechai walks that. And ironically, whatever the story was for us, the denouement of the story, look at what happened to Achashverosh and Haman, ultimately, right? Uh, and how life changed for them. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just to, to keep on this theme in the face of the precarious nature of life, the vulnerable nature of existence and, and chance that life could be turned over. The, the, well, well, maybe we'll get to Esther in a moment, but it seems that the book opens with Vashti, who takes a stand. Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately is, is, you know, leaves the narrative after chapter one and as a woman, as a marginalized figure. And then in, um, the, the course of, of, of the, the next figure, Mordechai, who's marginalized as a Jew takes a stand in his refusal to bow down to Haman. So you um, people listening to the podcast can't see my hands, but you have these two um, competing tensions in the book of, of, of on the one hand, um, fragility or unpredictability, and on the other hand, of, of leaders who, who take a stand, and ultimately that, that Esther we know um, will, will be taking a stand. Is that, is that a a fair read of, of, of the tensions at hand, or am I reading? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the wonders of all biblical commentary, certainly in the book of Esther, is the ambiguities in the text uh, allow, catalyze generations, millennia of commentary. And so I, I, I don't judge a reading. I appreciate readings. Um, I think that in certain environments, taking a stand, well, almost always taking a stand comes with a price tag. And uh, the price tag in this book is very steep. Uh, Vashti paid with it for her, you know, she paid, she paid for it with her life. Mordechai paid for it not only with his life, but potentially with the life of, of his nation. And, um, and yet, I think by having the ending that the book has, 
there is a statement made about the importance of of standing up uh, and and def- defending oneself, defending one's integrity, and defending, by the way, the political integrity of an empire. Um, I actually wrote my PhD on a commentary on Esther from the 16th century, uh, written by Eliezer Ashkenazi, Yosef Lepach. One of the things that's very striking in um, in in his reading is, you know, the search for God, which was not uncommon to other medieval commentators, the search for God and and where God is in the absence of God's name. And, you know, you, you, you almost feel that when people stand up for conviction, God's presence is standing with them. The question is how long you have to wait before justice is obvious to others. It's specifically in this book, uh, Ashkenazi points out the, to, points to the injustice of, of the harem system, right? Things that, that we sort of take for granted when we're reading the story and we, and children are dressing in costumes. But look at the injustice of that. Taking all these young women for your, you know, to fulfill your, your, your own personal lusts, uh, spending, you know, six months in myrrh, six months in oil. Who's governing at this time? What, where, what's the governance model? Um, and what happens to these young women who are taken from their families and they never go home again? So I think that there's a lot of injustice that Mordecai, in standing up for himself, in Vashti standing up for herself, um, doesn't always, doesn't always work out for individuals. But at, at the same time, someone has to, someone has to stand up. Right. Well, you know, you're sort of, if I could press you on this, um, it, it, it begs a question about Mordecai and Esther, mm-hmm. right? Because Vashti, you know, everyone dresses up as Esther, but Vashti's the one who actually is takes a stand and pays the ultimate price for taking a stand. Esther is one is enters into Ahasuerus's harem, and Mordecai is an enabler um, of that um, of that moment. And, and it, there's an element of discomfort, which isn't actually the only moment of biblical literature where you see it, where someone compromises, um, a certain value. Now, ultimately, we know how the story plays out. Thank God Esther was in the harem, um, at the moment where she was called on to save the Jewish people. Um, so we're grateful for that, but there's also, uh, for lack of a technical term, there's an ickiness to it. Right. She, right. So she I, was, I and, and Mordechai too, right? Yeah. Mordechai instrumentalized Esther's sexuality in order to, you know, uh, it, it, right. So I don't, I don't read it that way, Elliot. Um, okay. Elliot. Um, and I'll tell you why I, I don't read it that way. Um, so I used to live in Boston and my neighbor had a dog named Vashti. So I asked him one day, he was running down the street after Vashti. I said, Why'd you name her Vashti? And he said, because this is a dog that never listens. Now, um, and I, 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 I just, I remember standing in the street in Newton, Massachusetts and, and laughing. But I thought a lot about that in, in, in thinking about the text. Vashti took a stand. She took a stand against a, a, a husband who had spent 187 days at a party, who was probably drunk, most certainly drunk, um, and made a, um, and made a fool of his wife, asked his wife to compromise her dignity and then banished her. 
we, we don't have a record of her actually dying in this book. Um, she's suddenly not the favorite. And, and I imagine, yeah, I imagine that, uh, that if you've read, uh, Xerxes, or if you read anything about this period of time, fictionalized or not, the castles weren't castles like the Disney castle. They're more like a labyrinth of rooms. And you imagine Vashti having a fate perhaps even worse than death, being shunted off in a room very far away without any kind of status or any kinds of royal privileges anymore. In and you know, Then into the story enters Mordecai, who understands the kind of king he's dealing with, a king who makes predictably irrational decisions, who is counseled by a ministry of fools, who does things to protect his ego and status and hardly governs at all. And um, Mordecai uh, understands that he has to operate differently in this kind of climate. Now, Esther was taken. Esther. She was taken. She was taken by force, as were all young virginal women of the time. She wasn't put there. Uh, and in fact, if you read a lot of the classic commentaries, they, they stress the fact that she was forcibly taken and she didn't go of her own consent. And I think Mordecai understood that he had to protect this woman, quite the opposite of reading. They had to protect this young ward of his to make sure that she was not going to suffer the fate of, of the other women. In fact, the other women, all the women in the harem were invited to take whatever they needed in order to please the king. And uh, Esther brings only herself. Doesn't sound like she's trying to She does to win. hide her, her identity. She does hide her identity. And I think that was intentional. Mordecai tells her to hide her identity because he understands that, that that is going to be compromised. That may compromise her position. A lot of different ways to read that. But she hides her identity until there's utility in revealing her identity. And I think that's, um, that's an unfortunate aspect of life in the diaspora is that one, one has to hide one's identity and one can hide one's identity. You know, when you're in, when you're in your hometown, when you're someplace comfortable, everybody knows who you are. You can't really hide that easily. Uh, and I think that's a statement of, of, of Jews in exile is that, uh, when we're in a place without our own language, without our own calendar, without our own nationality, without our own political autonomy, and um, and as a result, hiding one's identity is actually a possibility. Right. Well, there's a very contemporary resonance to this question that we as Jews in the diaspora could pass sh- if we so choose. Um, you know, I, I take off my yarmulke and no one knows that I'm Jewish, um, maybe on the Upper East Side, but other places. <laughs> um, no. And so, you know, when we're reading this story and you see this sort of uh, the, this cross um this intersection of, uh, of of fragility of the Jewish condition and the choice as to whether or not to be assertive in our Jewishness or not. These are not questions that have run their course. They're questions that are, are more resonant today than, than any yeah. day. Yeah, and I think actually when you think about it, we're mandated in Jewish law to read this story on Purim twice. You might say, oh, these are ancient stories. They don't speak to me. And then you look at, you know, chapter three, verse eight, where Haman, Haman sort of declares about the Jews. They're scattered. Um, they're scattered. They, they're they, different. They're, they're different. They don't, they don't deserve to live. 
who makes that judgment? So it's interesting, Eliezer Ashkenazi, I mentioned earlier, um, on this verse, he really struggles. What kinds of king who governs 127 provinces would put any of his provinces or any of his people in any kind of jeopardy, let alone, let alone, uh, you know, persecution, oppression, death, without compromising the security of the entire polity, right? Who would do that? It was, if, if you come for the Jews, you'll come for us later. So that, that whole scene begs the question of how precarious life is for us. Um, and political life, not only for us, but for anyone in that, for anyone in that community, I think sometimes we read this story because children dress up in costume and because we have certain frivolity and spiels and other things that are connected to it. And we don't realize the depth sometimes of its darkness, um, both for the Jews in the beginning of the story and for the Persians at the end of the story. Perhaps, you know, citizens who really didn't understand what was happening in their capital city and yet paid the ultimate price for that sort of a, a Jews as a canary in the coal mine sort of thing. And as yeah. go the Jews, so too everyone else. So too. So there's an interesting ending. Your your commentary um, has a meditation on how the book itself actually ends, and which is curious. Of, of course, there's the the turning of, of fate and the victory, but then uh, uh, how do you um, make sense of the ending and of, of the story of Esther? Yeah, so um, that's one of the favorite, my favorite parts in writing the book. Uh, there were only three verses in chapter 10. So that's much shorter than the other chapters. And I think, I think the author was trying to communicate sort of the cutoff of exile uh, and diaspora itself. That, that it's almost like a write your own ending, right? Um, your own adventure, so to speak. Um, and what I did is I wrote three alternative endings to sort of fill out the chapter, all sourced in, uh, either in the book of Exodus, the book of Nehemiah, um, after Mordecai increased taxation, the people grumbled against the Jews and the enmity they had in the days of Haman was renewed. And then, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Or Esther and Achashverosh had a child. The child's name was Darius. Esther went into the king on summon and the king laid forth the scepter and said, what is your wish? And, and, and repeating the story again. Or the third one, and it was recorded in the annals of Persia and Medea that Ahasuerus was old and gathered into his ancestors and his son took the royal throne. The son was not like his father and did evil in God's eyes. And then we go on to um, something that could have appeared in Chronicles. I was, we don't know the ending, but the Bible does give us a variety of endings of, for life in the diaspora. And unfortunately, most of them are not happy endings. And there's, there's, there's a soberness about that for us. Um, you know, you're in New York. I'm in DC at this moment. Um, you know, we're, we, we're involved and deeply engaged in, in, in Jewish life in the diaspora. And we don't always feel the fragility of it. But I think because of the rise in anti-Semitism, something I never thought I'd say as a second generation Holocaust survivor. My, my other was a child survivor. My grandparents were survivors of Auschwitz. I never thought I'd see what I see now. I never thought that the book of Esther was a book I really had to take seriously uh, from a political and theological sense that this could be this could be our story. And I'm not trying to be alarmist or sensationalist. I'm trying to not be naive. 
trying to think of uh, of what to say after that, but it's uh, right that um, the fate of Jews of either anti-Semitism or assimilation in the diaspora, um, in a way, it, it's the one book that um, appears um, outside, well, other than certain parts of the Bible, the Joseph narrative and here and there, it's uh, situated entirely in a diaspora mentality of the fate that awaits us all. Yeah, um, but I do want to say, if you don't mind, um, you know, to, to cite, you know, my mentor and teacher, Rabbi Sachs, um, non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism. And I think that that, that is, if you think about the, you know, we can't do anything about random events. Uh, we very, very infrequently can control anything in politics, although I think by the end of the book, Mordechai and Esther's ascension in the political cabinet gave a sense of the importance of statehood and take and, 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 and taking a role in political life to protect one's own interest and to, and to help, um, you know, to help the royal coffers, to help the, the, to help, to help in governance. Um, but I think there's another piece to this, which is living proudly and openly as Jews and understanding that we stand for something in environments where conviction is hard and harder to come by. I think that, uh, I think we have so, so much to be grateful for. We have so many gifts. Judaism has given us so many gifts with which to approach a modern world in need of community, in need of friendship, in need of digital detox. And here it is, here it is in the book saying, this is yours. Please take it. Please honor it. Please hold on to it because it will save you. It will protect you. It will enrich you as you live in the diaspora with this uncertainty. Dr. Erica Brown, thank you. And I wish you and your loved ones a Purim Sameach. Your book, Esther, Power, Fate, and Fragility in Exile, a fabulous commentary on the book of Esther. And as I think we've convinced everyone who's listened to this, um, more urgent than ever um, and more timely than ever. Um, Erica Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Thank you. It's always a delight to be in conversation with you. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah.